Give up the worry about failing. Just give it up. You know, the average age of a successful entrepreneur is 49. It takes decades. And like, so just know that it takes decades. And if you fail in your 20s, you can fail in your 30s too. And then do it again. Hello, hello, hello. I am so excited today for episode 57 of the Afternoon Tea because I have a great gift, a wonderful, wonderful guest of uh, Jay Giraud uh, joining me today. Um, Jay, before we get into this, let me set this up if you please. Jay Giraud is an automotive tech entrepreneur focused on launching in companies that redefine mobility. Jay has built successful products and companies by marrying disruptive solutions and disruptive business models as the founder, inventor, and CEO of three automotive tech startups. These include his current company, Damon, with a mission to cause a paradigm shift for safer, smarter motorcycling, Mojo, a scalable, secure, and hardware-agnostic platform and SaaS provider to build and scale connected mobility services, and Rapid Electric Vehicles, Rev, an early mover, clearing tech vehicle technology company with a ready-for-market solution to help meet the challenge of becoming carbon-neutral. On top of this, Jay spent a good portion of the 90s living out all of our dreams as a competitive snowboarder. <laughs> Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Good to have you to be on here. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, you know what? I mean, there's there's a string here, you know, of, of your of your of your startups. It's uh, very vehicle oriented. Um, yeah. So just tell me what what piqued your interest in high performance electric vehicles or even just vehicles in, 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 in its own? Um, well, High performance, I guess, just comes from my obviously overly aggressive lifestyle to take risks. And, uh, and vehicles specifically came out of my realization that, you know, the only way to get the world off oil is to get people uh, to transform what's in their driveways. Mm -hmm. And I committed myself back in 2000, 2005, 2006, that I would help get the world off oil. And then I would spend the rest of my life doing that because it's going to take lifetimes, right? The equivalent of probably thousands of lifetimes combined to get the world off oil. Um, and it mattered a whole lot back in 2005, 2003, when I started to think about it, when I watched uh, the US bombing Baghdad, well, you know, over oil, quite obviously, <laughs> freedom is a load of shit. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and now, you know, it's 2022 and gas prices have jumped by whatever, 50% or 80% or something. And, uh, and it matters all that much more as we can see. So yeah, vehicles for that reason and uh, high performance, because I think that's where it all begins. Mm -hmm. Well, is that, I'm kind of intrigued because I know like, for example, I'm, I, own a, I own a Tesla Y and I understand, you know, what you're saying about high performance. Is that because of the whole model that you have to, you can squeeze more out of the high performance market and then um, you know, work backwards towards the towards the more common market, or is there? Yeah, that's, that's precisely why. Um, mm -hmm. And and this this isn't just because it's obvious to all of us now with the with Tesla in our in our hindsight sort mm -hmm. of thing. It's because that was the choice I did not make when I was making electric SUVs and pickups back in two thousand eight. When I founded Rev Technologies, we were doing um, you know vehicles that were, were you know higher performance. Um, they had a little more power, but not enough range at the time because of battery technology. And uh, we were selling them to the fleet government, fleet uh, customer, like governments and military and, and uh, B2B customers mm -hmm. and who, you know, don't care about performance. They care so much about cost. Whereas, yeah. um, and you know, you couldn't, you can't make something compete on cost when it's an early technology and Tesla didn't have to compete on cost in the early days. They competed on performance and, mm -hmm. and style and safety and things like that. 
where they could be significantly more expensive than a comp comparing comp uh, competitive vehicle like uh, whatever a Bugatti or a, you know anything they 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 outperform everything obviously um, and and that's where you can introduce new technology that is necessarily more expensive in order to to uh, disrupt the status quo so you know I'm learning that from from my own my own experience with Rev having made the wrong call and of course you know now we all have Teslas and it takes something better than what you have in your driveway for people to make you know mainstream level shifts away from what they currently own. For sure, for that's sure. Why, that's why Dame is, is starting in the super sport motorcycle category. And, and and can I say the sexy, sexy super sport category? Because every time I see it, an article and I see lots of articles about Damon, or I see, you know, the bike, it's just like, you know, I don't, I'm not a motorcyclist. I want one. Like I see yeah, that and I that, want one. That's the trick. <laughs> that, oh, it's a you've done a good job with that trick. Well, tell me, tell me about the creation story then of, of Damon, because I'm super excited about that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, like it all goes back, and I, I, I won't go into all of the data points, but it all goes back to um, uh, uh, chips and evil can evil and and uh, <laughs> what else? And my, my my five year well my my 16 year old babysitter when I was five who would take me out on his motorbike on the gas tank you know, and fly down the upper levels highway at hundred miles an hour, uh, unbeknownst to my mom while she was out bartending. Um, and, uh, you know, and then fast forward to my brother having uh, electric RC cars, which I thought the electricity was traveling through the air from the remote to the car because they had really, really long antennas. And then me thinking that that's how gas cars worked because they had really long antennas in the eighties. Um, and then, and then having this horrible realization when I was 15, well, you know, 12 or 13, that they all ran on gas. Mm. Um, and it was worse at 16 when I found out that gas combustion vehicles are 85% inefficient. And mm -hmm. that meant my $20 going into my, my 67 Beetle, I was only getting $5 of propulsion at best. And when 20 bucks is a lot to you when you're 16, um, mm -hmm. that, that's upsetting. That was very upsetting to me. I was really pissed about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then knowing at the time that electric drive was like 90% efficient. So why aren't we all in electric cars? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so fast forward to Damon. Um, I was uh, I was almost run over by about a million people in Jakarta on a motorbike. It's totally, mm -hmm. well, everybody's almost run over all day long there. Mm -hmm. uh, and thinking that we have to do something to make them safer. So kind of the intersection of electrification and safety. Um, and of course, you know, if you haven't been to Southeast Asia or India, and then you are, and you realize, oh my God, the world runs on two wheels, not four. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the numbers are, you know, 1.5 billion people daily depend exclusively on a motorcycle for their economic and family means. Mm -hmm. And if you were to remove all motorbikes from the world, it would literally collapse. So yeah, we're making super sport bikes so that we can start in the performance category and have the margins to make new technology, but we have to get to the mainstream mass market motorcycles worldwide in order to have, you know, that paradigm shift. Well, that's, that is, that is super fantastic. I mean, we, I, the Jakarta angle, I understand the Eric Estrada and chips. I was not, I was not expecting that to be coming out, but, uh, <laughs> um, but that's, yeah. that's, that's great. That is fantastic. Well, um, again, you know, these bikes that, that you're talking about, I mean, you got the hyper fight fighter, the hyper sport. I mean, these are sexy bikes for those who haven't seen it. I say, suggest highly press pause, press pause on this podcast and go, <laughs> go to Damon's website and see this and, and maybe order or pre-order one. Cause they are damn sexy but how did you come up with these vehicles badass names is that marketing or is that something that you came up with personally no that was so um our cto is a guy named derek dorstein and he founded alta making high performance electric dirt bikes that were the first ever to outperform gas dirt bikes in supercross championships in the u.s 
Um, so he ran that from 08 to 2018. And then mm -hmm. he, uh, you know, things happened to that company. It's a long story. And, uh, and so he joined Damon and he had this vision for what he called a hypersport. He knew that from his extreme level of uh, engineering proficiency that, that an electric drivetrain could be designed to fit in the very, very small space of a motorcycle frame um, to outperform a gas motorbike. And he called it the hypersport because what could be better than a thousand cc, 200 mile an hour super sport gas bike? It has to be more than super. So he, he coined hypersport. And I just fell in love with it right away. And so now we've been, you know, I thought all of the Ameri Western, Western or American style um, big bikes from Damon should start with Hyper. And then eventually we'll go to some other name series for, you know, more mass market commuter vehicles for the rest of the world. Oh, so Hyper makes... Sport, Hyper Fighter, and there's Hyper something else to come that we haven't talked about yet. Ah, and when you say we haven't talked about it, it means you're not going to be spending, you know, spilling any beans here. You're talking oh, about yeah. internal. I try, <laughs> I try, I try, I try. I try. I try. I try. Spill a bean. Hyper something. Hyper something else. <laughs> okay. Well, when I'm doing my wordle, I can at least figure out the first part there. Then, um, yeah. well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the, 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 the cross section here because you know you're talking about you're, you're almost, you're almost setting up for two different user types in a way because there's me who. I like the idea of a motorcycle. I, you know, I, I've got scooters. I, I, you know, go around all that with them, especially in Southeast Asia, where yes, it's it's everywhere and crazy so at the same time. Yeah, you've got no choice but to do that. You know, seven people right. on, on on one scooter and everything. But you're so you're talking about you know for the people that want the the hyper side. You know, you're talking about the speed, the the the, the benefits of the electro electrification, the speed. Uh, you know, the the torque, the ratio, all of that sort of thing. But you're talking about the safety, and that speaks to me, which is kind of interesting because you know I've grown up with my mother telling me, like I'm sure a lot of mothers did, hey never on a motorcycle you know that's that's just something that i've grown up with um though yeah. my mother even owns a scooter and drives around salt spring island on her scooter oh, all the time it's not, not that much different in my mind um but Wait you're on. talking about a very interesting angle about safety with it too which i don't know if that's usually as strong a marketing point um can you tell me i mean i did read that you know in the in the that you have a uh um, in your roadmap, you have uh, um, by 2030 uh, for Damon and has a roadmap for achieving full collision avoidance by 2030. How do you achieve that goal? Yeah, that's um, that's a really, really, there's just a bunch of questions there. Yeah, that's ambitious. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, where, we, where do I begin? So the, the conversation for safety in motorcycling doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. not, from, not by the OEMs, not by the manufacturers. Um, there is no conversation for safety. Honda, Ducati, Yamaha, Harley-Davidson, you know, whoever are not working on, first of all, they're not technology companies by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. They procure systems and parts from tier ones. So if Bosch has an anti-lock brake system, they procure it from Bosch. Nobody, no motorcycle company in the world developed an anti-lock brake system ever. Not mm -hmm. Honda, not, not BMW. And the systems they all, they all use today which make up, which only have impacted 8% of the world's motorcycles. Therefore, 92% of the world's motorbikes don't even have, don't even have ABS today. Mm -hmm. um, they all come from three suppliers. Mm -hmm. So they're all generic, they're all similar. They have no differentiation from one from the other in terms of how well that ABS or traction control system works. And again, that's only the 8% of the world that even have that. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no conversation for safety. They're not technology companies. They're not developing anything. They're not out there trying to solve problems they're only trying to beat each other on weight horsepower style that's it those are the three mm -hmm. things that they improve upon incrementally year after year um and and so the safety as a conversation in motorcycling doesn't exist other than like go buy a helmet and, and wear a leather jacket 
but that's not there. They don't have any influence on whether you do or don't do that. And so when we thought about this, we thought, my God, we have to deal with the safety issue, even though my priority is to help get the world off oil. And as a rider and pick any rider, we've all been in accidents. We've all been cut off. Some of us have been killed and we live with that. We live with that. We live inside this paradigm that is, that is talked about by all riders. Uh, and it's not if, it's when. And nobody gets into a car with that paradigm. No one gets into a car thinking, when am I going to have an accident in my lifetime? Because mm -hmm. probabilistically speaking, you won't. Mm -hmm. But on a motorbike, statistic, statistically, you will. You will mm -hmm. have an accident. So if it's, if it's a function of when, then it's really a function of how bad. And think about that for a second. You're throwing your leg over a motorbike. You're wondering, you should be wondering, how bad will I be injured? Mm. Right? And on one end of that extreme is something we don't even want to talk about. So when my co-founder Dom and I thought about Damon, you know, we thought, how do we make motorcycling 10 times safer? Um, it would need to get something like 10 times safer to be safe, as safe as a, as a car will be in 2030, which mm -hmm. you know, arguably they're pretty safe today mm -hmm. and they're getting safer. Um, so we thought about collision warning systems uh, and you know, thinking about the vehicle dynamics, the motion dynamics of a motorbike are nothing like that of a car. They lean, they pitch, they float within a lane because they're about one fifth the width of a lane. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of those motion dynamics um, uh, is, is a, a situation that no collision warning system can deal with today because collision warning systems are, are designed for cars which don't lean and they don't pitch mm -hmm. and they don't float and they're not narrow, right? So you can think <laughs> So we had to develop collision warning systems from scratch for motorbikes. Um, and we've got weight problems. We've got space problems. We've got cost problems. Most motorbikes don't cost as much as a car. You know, a radar on a BMW not, not 10 years ago was $5,000, you know, replacement cost. If it got hit, um, you know, side view mirror gets knocked off a car, five grand, because there's a radar in there. Mm -hmm. um, and today radars are like 25 bucks. So mm -hmm. thankfully they've kind of, come down to a point where we can we can really reinvent collision warning systems for or invent them for motorbikes. And we've done that to deal with all those unique vehicle dynamics in a way that far surpasses the performance of a collision warning system on a car. Now, when a collision warning system keeps a car or a motorbike entirely out of the accident in the first place, do you even need anti-lock brakes? Do you need seatbelts? Do you need a helmet? Do you need airbag systems? Those systems are designed to reduce the severity of the injury or the impact to the occupant. They're not designed to keep the vehicle out of the accident in the first place. So eliminating the accident altogether is, is, is profound because mm. cars, motorbikes don't have, you know, a cage or an airbag or anything. Um, and so our system has been shown to reduce accident probability by 40%. Amazing. Which is a lot. That's a lot. Motorbikes mm. are 27 times more likely to have a serious injury than a car. And so 40% of that is a huge removal of accidents for motorcyclists. It's, it goes from you know, a function of when you're gonna have an accident on a bike to a function of if, mm. right? So now we're already changing the paradigm. Now, if we're collecting data the same way my previous company, Mojio has done, mm -hmm. uh, we can use that data and over the air updates so that the algorithm on the car, on the bike, pardon me, is getting better and better and better over time which means mm -hmm. the more you ride a motorbike, the safer I get. Awesome. Or, or the more I ride a motorbike and I've been riding 27 years, the safer beginners like you get. So mm -hmm. what's really exciting is this paradigm shift um, is actually attracting a lot of people like you. So 24%, fascinating. Yeah, 24 of our 2,300 orders and growing at about 100 to 200 a month Amazing. Uh, are beginners. They're people who've never ridden a motorbike, who don't own a bike. And they're buying, they're buying bikes because 
we're, we're, we're dealing with this, you know, unaddressed, unspoken about problem called safety on motorbikes. You know, so people like yourself who might order a Damon bike, we're not and are not in the market for a Honda or a Ducati or yeah. you know a Harley Davidson. And how big is that market? I, I did not expect to be even one in ten of our of our base. It's already one in four. Amazing. Well, I mean, that makes so much sense because I mean, and this is the beauty of being kind of that we'll call it an underdog compared to you know a Harley Davidson is they they have to market. Hey, why even wear a helmet? You know, because that's kind of the yeah. image. But you're you're showing the future. You're showing you know what where it should be going, not the conservative side of what it's been for fifty years, right? Yeah. And so you yeah. have the ability to have that conversation with people and bring people like myself who can say to my mom, "Hey, mom, you know this thing's pretty safe and well, sexy too." You know, come on, come on. Yeah. Um, well, that's well, that's really cool. And and then you talk about the safety again. I, I really applaud that that angle because I think that's super important. But um, one thing that I liked when I was again doing my homework on on, on Jay is you know, finding out that you have multiple patents. I mean, when you say you're an inventor, you are literally an inventor, which is which is super interesting to me. Um, so you have, I, at least I caught up at least three, uh, but there were multiple patents. And one of them, I mean, the names make sense. For example, the Health Aware Car Accidents Telematics. Can you tell me about the experience for even just applying for uh, patents? Because I've done it. It's not fun. <laughs> oh, well, I don't do it. <laughs> I, I don't even. So the he who... Uh, thinks of something and whose team then figures out how to develop it, the award of the patent goes to the inventor, not the, not the, not the engineer, which is kind of stupid. So, and you're only allowed to add like two names generally to a patent application. Um, and, and so more and more so, even though, you know, at Damon, we're coming up with patent ideas, um, like Dom and I, you know, coming up with how to do collision warning or how to understand the behavior dynamics of a human on a motorbike or, you know, health aware telematics or whatever it might be. Um, uh, you know, our, our engineering team is figuring out the how. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the how is what matters more than anything. And unfortunately, we can't name them all. So we're, we're literally just passing them on so that they can have those patents awarded to them. But okay. yeah, I've got about five patents at Mojo and I think uh, eight at Damon now. Amazing. Uh, there's a few more to come. And what's crazy though, and it has nothing to do with whether my name is on it or not, is, is that inside Damon, we're eight for eight patents awarded and we're about to become 11 for 11. Incredible. Which is ridiculous because the average patent approval rate is about 57%, mm-hmm. uh, which means there's just a massive white space in this where we are in, in motorcycling. Just It's just so totally undisrupted um, and, and underserved from a technology standpoint. That's super interesting. Yeah, you're sur- you're surfing you're surfing and creating the tech at the same time. So, or I guess yeah. I should say snowboarding and creating the same tech at the same time. Well, you know, well, you know, one 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 last question until we get to the next companies because I am really intrigued. I mean, I, I I love electrification of vehicles. You know, more than I ever thought I would. When, when the first time you drive one is the first time you realize what the heck are you thinking? Even when people are like going yeah. to be, oh, I just want to get you know kind of a, a little bit of electric and a little bit of a gas engine together, a little hybrid. I'm like. You're missing the point. You're not going to need the gas. You know, yeah, you're just adding totally. weight for nothing. Um, but, that way, yeah. Oh, so so at least you know, I would say people are mentally ready for it. And and then there was great shows that must have helped you, like uh, was it the, the Long Way Up or whatever it was, where they had the electrification up North America. You know, that must have helped at least people understand. But what what for you? I mean, from from lessons of you know with Rev in the early days, I'd say probably too early uh, to now. What was the biggest challenge of building a street? legal electric vehicle like what was the biggest challenge you faced uh fundraising yeah they're not cheap Hard, hardware is not cheap is it yeah yeah well and it, whether it's you know people throw hundreds of millions at stupid software ideas so that people can send pics to each other right and so you know 
those companies aren't cheap. Mm-hmm. The cost of payroll of a software company is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but nonetheless, and, and, and the moat is like non-existent. Really, there's not much of a moat from one software mm-hmm. company to another. It's all land grabs. Um, whereas the moat of building a hardware company is extremely significant and underappreciated. And the risk is, is, I don't think there's any more risk making a hardware company than there is making a software company. Once you have orders and you're ordering inventory, there's, there's debt solutions all day long for your inventory. And yes, it compounds and that's a good thing. That means you're growing like crazy. But, some, but you know, suffice to say, the, the challenge is just fundraising. It's, it's by far the hardest because of those perceptions around hardware and vehicles and safety and, you know, but you're doing something that matters to the world, but the vast, vast majority of investors would rather fund something that's meaningless in 20 years. Yeah. A Giphy for $200 million. Um, yeah. So, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I understand that. So, so I want to ask you about the creation story of Mojo. Um, t- tell me about that. Cause I think, I think that's, uh, was such, is such an interesting company. Yeah, so the creation story of Mojo is a pivot out of Rev. So okay. I founded Rev in 2008, and, and the idea of Rev uh, was to make electric vehicles that we could sell to the fleet markets. We believe that you know the path through fleets was the path to um, to uh, the potential to aggregate large energy sources and mm-hmm. and further stabilize the power grid, which would eventually become understood as a consumer opportunity to balance supply and demand, so that people could become energy independent. Uh, and so, you know, putting that into layman's terms, um, you've got three to five days worth of it, worth of home energy stored in your battery of your car, your car's in the driveway and 96% of the time your car is parked. So that's an enormous amount of energy you could siphon out of your car and it would have a negligible effect on the range of your car, but it would run your house in the event of a power outage. Mm-hmm. Uh, now put solar on the roof and you can, you can actually produce your own energy and store it in the car until you, until your house needs it. And, mm-hmm. and those three things combined just changes life on earth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely change. You wouldn't need power lines, power grid. You wouldn't mm-hmm. need power monopolies. You wouldn't need oil. You wouldn't need oil extraction. I mean, it totally changes life on earth. Um, uh, and we demonstrated that capability commercially with the US, uh, US military, the DOD, uh, through the Pentagon, so government-funded contracts in uh, the Midwest ISO, in Hawaii, uh, and in Detroit mm-hmm. uh, with Chrysler. Uh, but by 2012, natural gas prices fell 15x. So our focus on government fleets went right back from electrification to natural gas fleet vehicles, mm-hmm. uh, because you know the price of batteries just can't compete with that. So here we were with this cloud computing system that allowed us to communicate to all of our electric vehicles that we built um, all over North America, uh, and it was a powerful cloud, a powerful internet-connected platform for cars. And I've been thinking for about a year, you know, once we had this internet connection to all of our Rev SUVs, I thought there's so many other things you can do with your car once it's internet connected. Um, and that the turnover rate of new cars being built with an LTE connection was extremely slow. And, you know, by 2020, even that was even eight years from then, um, by 2020, we'd have barely a penetration of internet connected cars coming off the dealership floors. So there's this huge legacy opportunity to convert the whatever it is 1.2 billion internet uh, un- unconnected cars on the road, like a you know Honda Civic from 1998. So I we founded Mojo, and Mojo is a device that has an internet connection in it, um, an embedded SIM card, and you plug it into the OBD port of your car, and you can use all of that data in the cloud to create any sort of app you want that would change the way you drive. So we don't create a platform for connected vehicles where anybody could build an app for any car, as long as that car had a device in it, a Mojo device, 
The trick then became, how do you get millions of these devices into millions of cars as quickly as possible? And the, and the way to do that is through the wireless carrier by having them embedded into your cell phone plan. So instead of paying a hundred bucks for the device, you just pay $10 a month on your cell phone plan, you know, which disappears into your cell phone plan being about 150 a month, right? <laughs> and that was definitely the play to remove that, that pricing friction of the hardware device that you're not sure if you really want it or not. Uh, and so today we have, uh, Mojo has uh, partnerships and distribution with uh, Rogers, Telus, Bell, Metro PCS, Telefonica, uh, Deutsche Telekom, T-Mobile, and a couple of others, I believe, in, in nine countries worldwide. It's mm, awesome. And, and the amount of the information that you can pull from the cars and, and make, I mean, I remember the first time, I mean, I, well, so you're one of your co-founders, Nar- Narian, um, we used to be my neighbor, like we, we lived in the same building in Yale town. So every right. once in a while, we'd just be, you know, I'd have my kids out, we'd just be chatting. And he, I remember him telling me about this in the early days. I'm like, this is super cool. Cause I don't, I'm not, again, I'm not a gearhead. I don't know much about cars, but I love data and realizing that, Hey, you know, with this, 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 you know, ODB two port, information now you all of a sudden can make a smart car and um so anyhow i I just remember not only not only knowing the information but then you can create all these opportunities with it well well, why don't don't you tell me because mojo is obviously still you know it's a growing company it's 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 uh you know doing very interesting things especially around the big data and everything but what's a lesson learned that um because you you moved on to to damon is there any lessons that you got from because you know we, we made that one pretty successful what's any lessons learned from that Oh, it's hundreds. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, from a data perspective, I'd say that there's a tremendous amount of, of uh, uh, I don't want to say misinformation, but unmet expectations of the potential for data. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, we were talking about how nobody understood data and how to really monetize it or how to leverage it and, and what it would take. And, and, and I'd say today that's barely changed. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's been, you know, Mojo was founded in 2012, so it's been 10 years. God, 10 years. And, and it's really changed. So, you know, there's there's tremendous potential for data if used correctly and su- successfully internally, but you have to put a lot of resources on it. And and it's, you know, how much of an improvement are you going to get? Through over-the-air updates, you can make big improvements to your software and how it's used. But how do you monetize it as a way of creating a, a steady revenue stream? That's much, much more challenging mm-hmm. and still hardly done successfully anywhere. Uh, Mojo's got revenue streams on mon- data monetization. Um, and I don't know how significant they are. I haven't really been involved in Mojo in yeah. six years, but um, five years. But uh, uh, Damon, you know, if we use it internally, it'll be huge. And then through SaaS services, it'll be huge. So the data, you're not necessarily monetizing the data exactly, but you're monetizing new business opportunities as a result of the intelligence you get internally from that data. Mm, mm. Well, I... I I mean, the data is huge. I remember, I remember one problem because we did, we did, I mean, I don't really want to talk about stuff we did with, with you guys, but we did do it with an app back with back in the day with Mojo. And I remember one of the biggest challenges was because this was never a thought. This was a problem that, that the car companies never thought about, but a lot of the, um, what are you going to call it? Like the, the return, the information returns wasn't really cataloged. So you didn't really know the, how to index a lot of that information, but moving forward, obviously you index every single data point or that's, that's being captured. Um, how long did that take just to clean up? Cause I remember that was a big problem at the time. Oh, I think we had like three platform refactorings over a course of like a year and a half. <laughs> and you know, the volume of data, even though it's really, really small bits and bytes, it, it adds up when you're dealing with millions of cars driving oh, yeah. an hour a day on average, it adds up enormously. Um, and you can keep everything, but you have to very, very quickly decide what you're not keeping or it, or the cost of, of hot storage or even you know cold storage will far outweigh your 
your near-term revenues and it just won't make sense. Oh, that, that makes, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Well, what, one of the conversations I was looking most forward to talking about with you um, was the snowboarding lifestyle and, 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 and uh, you know, that, 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 that was Jay. Tell me what, what, what was it like to be a competitive snowboarder? What, what, how did you get into that? And, uh, and yeah, <laughs> why, that, did, why uh, did you I, get out? <laughs> um, uh, well, I mean, you know, you're a kid and it's fun and exciting and new. I seem to like things that are new. Uh, mm-hmm. It was whatever it was, 89 or 90. I've been skiing for five. I mean, you get into it because you live on the North Shore. And the yeah. North Shore has three ski hills, 15 minutes bus ride from your school. So mm-hmm. you get into it by default, really. Like, what choice do we have? Um, mm-hmm. Being Vancouverites, looking up at the snow in the mountains every winter. Um, but yeah, it was it was just super fun and different. No one else was doing it. And, and so, you know, buddies get into it. And before you know it, you're dreaming of being like the pros in the, in the magazines and on the videos. Um, and Whistler's not too far away. And mm-hmm. I wanted to be a pro snowboarder. I just wanted to do it for a living. And so you start getting to amateur competitions and then you, you find out that you're better than you thought you were because you're, you're winning them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, it's all about getting sponsors and in the era before digital. So it was way harder, you know, physically getting pictures taken and having to get photographers to spend time and money on their reels mm-hmm. to take photos. And then, you know, getting those photos developed, like developed the old mm-hmm. school thing and stuffed <laughs> into an envelope and mailed out to a, mailed out to a team manager of a snowboard brand whose name you can't find on the internet because there's no LinkedIn. And uh, <laughs> you know, you had to become, you had to become known organically through your network and your network had to talk about you, your network, which is not a term you use in snowboarding, your friends, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your peers on the hill and they have to talk about you and their friends have to talk about you. And eventually maybe by word of mouth, some team manager of a snowboard brand in wherever, Vermont, hears about mm-hmm. you and, and, decides to find you and contact you somehow or, or meets you at a ski at a snowboard event right mm-hmm. and then you know sees you up on a podium and and decides to talk to you about sponsorship it was super hard oh, super that sounds hard. hard today you take a you know you take a video on your phone from, from the ski lift your buddy takes it from you know gets a great angle on the ski lift of you going over a jump and shoots it to somebody on twitter boom of course so does everybody else yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, I love, I love when we, when we get to complain about how easy it is for the kids these days and they're snowboarding. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> you know, I totally think. Well, but but you know, the description you just did of creating the network, I think that's super interesting and actually leads really well into the next question. It was how does like snowboarding, especially when you're trying to be you know competitive, how does it compare to founding a company? Um, I've been trying to figure that out for twenty, I don't know, three years. <laughs> 20, 20 some odd years. Um, I can only I can only say one thing, like what the what the the analog is between my snowboarding time and, and, and entrepreneurship is that you learn how to take calculated risks really well. Mm. And that's it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And whether they're physical risks like throwing yourself off a, a big dumb jump, or they're you know financial risks or they're people risks or they're technology risks, you just mm-hmm. learn how to do so in a in an incremental fashion that you get more and more comfortable with risk taking and you build a muscle for it, you know, and it, people call it intuition or whatever, but it's a combined, it's a thousand data points that your brain somehow figures out, you know, and your muscle memory, if you want to call it that and all of that, you learn how to take risks really well. I think that makes a lot of sense. Or, or football or whatever it might be the risk, the, the, uh, the uh, consequence of a poor risk decision is immediate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Felt quite literally immediately. If you make a mistake. <laughs> Whereas uh, in, in, you know, in building a company, 
um, it takes much longer time frames. Well, then, then one last snowboarding question. How's your knees? Uh, good. I had surgery. <laughs> I figured something would have had to have happened at some point. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling them. I'm feeling them mine now. Well, you know what? I, it, I've, I've always been impressed. I mean, again, doing lots in the in the automotive industry, and um, but you know, you've done successful in, in multiple things. I would say, and really kind of pushed the breadth of the technology. But how do you want to be remembered? Like, is there a legacy that you know is Jay? Um. Well, Damon should be the the biggest and the most successful motorcycle company in the world. Um, you know, well before I'm gone, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it should it should you know irrefutably alter the landscape of motorcycling forever, from gas mm-hmm. to electric and from not safe to safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's probably some version of Damon beyond that that is you know bigger than motorcycling, or mm-hmm. or I should say a form factor or a, a form of travel beyond motorcycling, mm-hmm. uh, which we have some ideas for, but you know we won't get there for at least ten years, um, and. Uh, and, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm remembered, but Damon just needs to go on. And, and you know, here, this is just to get really complicated about it. Um, every, every solution to a problem at scale becomes the world's next problem. Mm. And like, you know, the first company that's going to create a problem for, uh, that's going to replace the, the oil problem will probably be Tesla. Mm-hmm. Right? It'll, re- it'll replace the oil problem, but it will replace it with a new problem called lithium supply. Yep. Cobalt or, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll fight our resource. That's what's going to happen. We're going to, mm-hmm. you know, once all the motors, all the car companies are making electric cars, we're going to be fighting over a different resource. And, and so it's, it's tricky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's tricky. Like generationally, humans are going to solve problems and create new ones and so do it. That's so depressing, but so true. Like I, 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 I truly, I truly understand. Well, you know, well, yeah, we probably had steam problems, and before that, we had wood problems and horse problems. I don't know. You know, we solve problems. We create and solve problems. It's, so know you know what? Depressing. It's just the cycle. That's humans. That is humans, and uh, no, I, I love that. Well, the, the the theme of the podcast, Jay, is to um, you know talk to awesome uh, Canadian founders like yourself in order to kind of expedite the uh, the next generation of startups uh, from 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 these lessons. So I have these two questions I ask in every in every episode. Um, okay. First one is: Can you share one piece of advice to help a younger Canadian founder? Oh, just give up the worry about failing. Just give it up. Very good. Otherwise, don't start. <laughs> <laughs> as, as said from a snowboarder, you know, that's when you want to go higher, just go higher, right? So I, yep. I, I definitely appreciate that. So next question, can you share the name of a Canadian entrepreneurial star or founder that you personally look up to? Yeah, there, there's um, honestly not really any, any major ones that, that, I, would, uh, that would, I would highlight in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a tremendous number of American successful entrepreneurs uh-huh. Uh, I'm most personally fascinated, and I, I've read to quite an extent, The Life of Nikola Tesla, mm-hmm. which is absolutely a biography and a, a life story that you want to dive into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the, the risk-taking muscle of, of, of the Canadian culture is, is not as strong as it could be, compared mm-hmm. to definitely compared to the American culture. Um, and there's, there's trade-offs, right? Like there's, there's pros and cons to both. I mean, mm-hmm. the American culture is far more capitalistic than the Canadian culture is. And it, it comes with its own societal consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, Japanese way of doing business is extremely risk averse 
and people all kind of fall in line and are very much wanting to to um, to to kind of tow the rope. Whereas um, and and the school system is is a certain way because of that. Whereas mm-hmm. in American culture, people are are really encouraged to be crazy and to take risks and and the way that that Americans are raised is is very very different. We're freedom above all else, you know, freedom of expression, creativity. <laughs> and Canada's maybe somewhere in the middle of those two, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if I were to like wave my magic wand and and decide how to influence Canadian culture, I'd push us a little more towards the direction of of Americanism of of you know freedom of expression because it mm-hmm. leads to you know a risk taking nature and it leads to you know people being unafraid of failure. Um, and there's no shame in failure, like say there is in other cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I think that Canada does really well on the innovation side. We starve for funding, and so mm-hmm. whenever there is great entrepreneurship, it's, it's unfortunately it doesn't get to see its way all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's that's a challenge because there probably are great entrepreneurs in Canada that don't have the the means or the uh, or the resources or the the, the perseverance needed. Mm-hmm where it's so hard to get capital to, to see your idea through to success. Oh, for sure. And, and you know what? I'm just going to restring this back to that, that first question of sharing, sharing the, the advice. Again, just go for it. You know, this is, this is, this is what you're saying. Just go for it. Have yeah. that culture, have that, you know, f- lack of fear of, of failure because failure is a, is, is a point where you learn. So. Yeah. And there's, there's a, there's a whole lot of 20 uh, somethings and even 30 somethings who feel like, that they should be successful. You know, the average age of a successful entrepreneur is 49. Woohoo. Guess what? How old I am? 49. How old are you? I'm yeah. 49, baby. <laughs> 49. See? There you go. It, it takes decades. And like, so just know that it takes decades. And if you fail in your 20s, you can fail in your 30s too. And then mm-hmm. do it again. Completely. Completely. Jay, I, I had so much fun chatting with you. I am like, we'll be following Damon as you sell your first 1 million motorcycles, hyper X, hyper this, hyper that. Each one of them is going to be just as sexy. But but thank you so much for for, for spending time with uh, with us today and sharing some of your, uh, you know, really well-learned lessons. And uh, I, I really enjoyed chatting today. Cool. Thank you very much. It was great to be on. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode, and that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at TTT, that is three T's, dot studio. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us at social media at TTT underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.